noticeably shorter than the previous ones. It's only three verses long, but it is full of life. And in it, the psalmist, who was David, expresses his deeply felt confidence in the Lord with this simple, clear, yet profound prayer. It voices a trust of a close and personal relationship with God. I'll read it now. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me, but I've calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Verse one opens up with a threefold denial of pride. He denies a pride in his heart and in the eyes and in the things he occupies himself, his actions. He says, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I'm gonna tackle this kind of one sentence at a time for verse one. Um, He says, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. As we read that and we think of hearts, we think of our emotions, our compassions, the things that make us like our personality. But we gotta remind ourselves that this is Hebrew poetry. This is not a Western idea of the heart. For us today, we think of our mind and our heart being separated. Our intellect is up in our brain and that what we feel is in our heart. That's not exactly the case for a Hebrew. Heart biblically defined in in comparison to what we understand today includes not only the feelings, affections, and desires and motivations of a man, but also his will, his aims, the things that guide his principles, all of his thoughts, all of his intellect, everything he knows from how to do his job to who to pay his taxes to, to what he feels about his children, what he feels about his family. All of that is in the heart. A biblical definition of the heart is it encompasses the entirety of the inner self and is described as being receptive to the influence of not just the world, but also God. He goes on to say that my eyes are not raised too high. As we read that, we can conclude that his eyes and what they look upon are not too high or exalted. Similarly to the heart, the Bible talks a lot about the eyes, but it surprisingly is a little more difficult to define. The Bible actually talks about eyes way more than it talks about hearts. Uh, The eyes were used to describe someone's health or their illness, beauty or intelligence, care and focus, as well as a means to judge. People would say, let me rest my eyes upon to judge him. So which is it? I think in the context of this verse, I think it is his intent to deny any sense of haughtiness that is arrogance, superiority, or disdain. This is also traditional. Those of you who are, com- are familiar with the King James may recognize this psalm as the my heart is not too haughty psalm. It's a psalm about haughtiness, about being prideful or the lack thereof, which David expresses. But with all this denial of pride in his idea of himself, in his heart, we, what is he comparing it to? He needs 
there needs to be a comparison. He's not arrogant or possessing superiority over others. Anything that comes from him internally, internally, he's holding in humility. But compared to what? Or why is he so humble? I think the hint, or at least the answer to that question, is actually in the last sentence of verse 1. He says that I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. The things that a person occupies themselves is what they do with their day to day, what you do with the hands. It's a denial of pride in his hands. And at first glance, it seems that the verse may be dismissing the value of taking action of any kind. He's not occupying himself with things, so we should conclude that we're not to occupy ourselves with things, right? That's not what he's saying. There's criteria for what he occupies himself with. He does not occupy himself with things too great or too marvelous for him. But we do know he's occupying himself with something. So what are those things? And remember, this is going to weigh against where he has this humility. We get to do a little, I don't want to say cheating, but it is a Psalm of David. So we can actually kind of dive into a little bit of a character study and think about what was it that David did? What did he experience? What was his day like? What did he occupy himself with? David was many things in his life. He was a son, a father, a brother, a husband, a shepherd, a poet, a warrior, and he was a king. And I really want to focus in on his duties as a king to help answer our questions. As king, he had a number of occupations, duties, and things he had to fulfill, but he had one primary one. And as king, he would have fit into the monarchical government structure of Israel. And I think to like get an idea of what that's like, we can break it down. At the top, God is supreme and would ordain all that happens over the kingdom, but God was not, quote unquote, the king. He's supreme and he ordains all, but his office in that time, David was the king, it was a position. And the prophets who spoke for God were held in higher regard than King David. They were held in higher regard because they were doing the speaking for God. And it was the king's job, David, to carry out what God had spoken in order to ensure that it was administered over the people. And the role of administering what God had said was reserved for the priesthood. However, it was still the king's responsibility to ensure that they did in accordance with what God had said. So, God speaks through the prophets or his written word. The king would ensure that what God had said was administered over the people and the priesthood would exercise the administration. So as king, David's occupation was to be submitted to the law and to those who spoke for God, the prophets. In fact, one of his daily duties was to take a scroll and make his own personal copy of the law. It was literally the book of Deuteronomy. That was his like daily activity. So studying God's word was one of his primary absolute occupations. And we see this actually expressed in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17. It says, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, 
he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, which is approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes in doing them. That his heart, interesting, may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either from the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom. It was David's occupation to study and learn and obey and know God's word. And as a person, not only David, but anyone who reads God's law, it quickly becomes obvious that there's much in it that God tells people to occupy themselves with or to not occupy themselves with. There are laws for sons, daughters, fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, farmers, builders, soldiers, kings, anything. And there are moral laws as well. Do not murder, do not covet, do not steal. And those apply to everyone in between. So we can conclude that God's people do have much to occupy themselves with. So what could be too great or too marvelous for David to not occupy himself with? He's told to do all these things, taught how to be holy in the law, how to do all this work, all these things. What is too great? What is too marvelous? As we refer back and think about David's life, I think there's one event in his life which particularly stands out. It comes from 2 Samuel 7, and it's the Lord's covenant with David. And as I read it, those of you who are familiar with it, I hope you'll begin to see where I'm going with it. I'll only be reading verses 1 through 6 and 12 through 16 for the sake of time because it's pretty chunky and I don't want to just, just read endlessly to you. <laughs> Verse 1 starts off, Now when the king had lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest for all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. He continues on, but I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but the steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the Davidic covenant. And to summarize it very quickly for you, at the top, David desires to build God a house, a literal place of worship, a temple, one of fine cedar and all these different things. But God says no. Who are you to build me a house? Instead, God would build David a house, but not just any house. He's going to build him a dynasty. 
he also promises that he would make David's name great. And he echoes the promises which he made to Abraham a thousand years prior. And the promise that God gives to David is traceable all the way down through his descendants, all through the other kings of Israel and Judah. And it culminates in the arrival of the son of David, Jesus the Messiah. So what is too great and too marvelous for David? What can he not occupy himself with? It's God's covenant. I want to expand on it just to talk about the sheer size and magnitude of it and how it quickly becomes too big for one man, David, to handle his whole life. In verse 8, he says, I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And this echoes God's promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation and bless him. And he will make his name great and he will be a blessing. So right at the top, the covenant that David receives from God reaches all the way back to the promises made to Abraham. It's roughly a thousand years. But not only that, God promises that when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish their kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. God's covenant with David didn't just reach all the way back, but it also goes forward. It fulfills his promises to Abraham. Sarah also was told that from her seed kings would come. And it continues down beyond the reaches of David's life. David would go on to have sons, and all of his sons would be kings. And God will treat these kings as sons. And when they commit iniquity, they will be disciplined with the rods of men and the stripes of the sons of men. This is a reference, and we can see this in the life of Solomon in particular, who would actually go on to build God a literal house, a temple. And when the kings of Israel and Judah were in sin against God, they certainly were disciplined as promised. We can see this in the Chronicles of the King. But the lineage would never break as it did with Saul. So the covenant which God establishes reaches back all the way, but also forward to include the descendants of David and establishing a dynasty. And when he had died and gone to lie down with his fathers, it would continue. Do you see how it's too big for David to have control over it. The scope of it spans alone thousands of years and as we'll soon see, still continues. <laughs> he says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The everlasting nature of David's throne finds and meets its culmination in the Messiah, in Jesus. And this covenant promise given to David becomes the messianic hope and inspiration for Israel's faith before their exile and after their exile. The prophets talk about it. Isaiah says that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, that is David's father. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And Jeremiah says that the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. You see how it is too great and too marvelous for David? In this covenant promise, God is completing and promising more than David could ever hope to accomplish in his own life. As we've seen, it spans thousands of years. And if you were to stop and put yourself in David's shoes for a minute, 
God has given you this wonderful promise about not only reinforcing what you've already had your faith in, the Abrahamic covenant, but also a promise for your descendants and for a great messianic king to come. Think about how much you can actually guarantee to know what will happen to your great-great-grandchildren. We can certainly set them up and prepare for them generationally. We can do the best we can, but when we're gone, who knows what lives they will lead. But God knows, and his promise to them is just as sure to his promise to us as his promise was to David. And the great culmination of this promise, we have the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus. It is a totally gracious, totally marvelous, totally great arrival. The covenant promise that David was given would go on to grow and expand and is ultimately the same promise and hope that we find ourselves in today. Paul had this to say about it in Romans chapter four. The promise to Abraham and to his offspring that they would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, he's become the father of many nations. Paul would go on to say that no unbelief made him who was Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words of his counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is where it all kind of comes crashing together. <laughs> it was counted to Abraham as righteousness because he was totally convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That Abraham and his offspring would be heirs of the world and that he would be a blessing to all nations. Not only that, but the words it was counted were not for his sake, but for ours and David's. It would be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord resulting in peace with God through Jesus Christ. The great and marvelous thing that David can't occupy himself with just got bigger and bigger. Not only does it fulfill and speak of the promises made to Abraham, but it establishes a physical dynasty for David which God used to bring about the Messiah. And then from Christ the Messiah, it extends on to the people who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. What are we believing in? We're believing in God who said these things would happen. God's people in the past believed in and hoped in a coming Messiah through the lineage of Abraham and in the lineage of David who was a descendant of Abraham. And they also hoped and believed that the Messiah would come. That was the substance of their faith. They waited for him. Similarly, God's people today now look back on the Messiah who was Jesus 
And just as the saints of old looked forward and believed God's promise, the saints of today who look back and believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, that he was truly delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, that is the substance of the Christian faith. It is the same living hope. The promise of the Old Testament is the same as the promise of the New Testament. It's Jesus. On the cross, Jesus paid for the sins of those who believed he would come thousands of years before his arrival just as much as he paid for the sins of those who believed in him today and thousands of years after his arrival. The Bible is one long story in which Christ is at the center. They looked forward to him and we look back on him and we wait for his return. This is what is too great and too marvelous for David, for the psalmist, for us. God's redemptive plan for history, the forgiveness of sins, the saving of souls. That is what is too great and too marvelous for me. So to recap our psalm. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. As king, David was charged to occupy himself with the submission and the study and the practice of the law. But we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And though the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, no amount of occupation, no amount of works of your hands can stand in the glory or greatness or marvel of the thing that God has done for his people. The psalmist has denied pride in his feelings, his actions, his desires, his wills, his aims, principles, thoughts, intellect, everything about him internally. But why? Because he just does not occupy himself with things too great and too marvelous for him, that being God's redemptive plan for history and his people. The, the psalmist simply cannot occupy himself with it. He cannot outsmart it, no matter how passionately he feels about it, whether he's super positive or super negative about the things that God does. No matter how much he scrutinizes it, nothing he does can add to or take away from God's grand redemptive plan for history. Let us move on to verse two. It says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Christians today, I noticed in a lot of sermons, whenever they come across but, they like to say, oh, we got a but here, and we got a big but. But they never talk about what the but is. But is a linking word. It contrasts two ideas that are different. So what is being contrasted? The psalmist, in verse one, has laid down all his feelings, his intellect, his desires, and his actions a thing that would seemingly bring about much anxiety and turmoil. But what does he do instead? He calmed and quieted his soul. And how can he do this? Because of what God has done. Refer back to God's promise or covenant with David. He says that the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Likewise, the same way that the Lord has given rest to David from his surrounding enemies, God has also given us rest in the assurance of Jesus' sacrifice. And we should also note, as we make observations, that a calmed and quieted soul stands in stark contrast to a prideful heart, prideful eyes, and a pride in the hands. 
Verse two goes on to say, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. The psalmist draws a beautiful picture of perfect contentment and confidence that he enjoys in God here. He's not unlike a weaned child with its mother, easily disturbed by hunger. And just as the psalmist was perfect, had perfect contentment and confidence in God and his promises, we who trust in and follow Jesus today can also have perfect contentment and confidence for what God has done. This is not prosperity gospel or a promise for an easy life, but it is a promise for the soul, that it can rest easy and assured that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, resulting in a peace with God. And this whole second verse is an illustration of motherhood. It's really interesting. The Bible talks a lot about mothers, but it's sometimes they're glossed over. We talk about Mary a lot, or maybe Elizabeth. But not, we don't meditate much on mothers. God is the creator of both men and women. And his attributes are reflected back into the world by both of them. The care and protection that we can see in mothers with their children is a reflection of an aspect of God's character. Isaiah even talks about it. He says, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. The psalmist likens the comfort and care that he finds in the Lord with that of a mother with its child. I think that's really cool just to like sit and think about it a little bit. But I also want to be clear that God is not a mother. He is a father. But his character can be seen in mothers just as much as it can be seen in fathers. The verse continues on about weaned children, and I had to Google it because I got confused on the weaned versus unweaned and the double negative, and I don't have kids. I might have kids one day. I'm also not a mother, and I don't intend to be a mother. Um... So what is a weaned child? A weaned child is one that is fed and not reliant on milk anymore. So what is an unweaned child? One that needs to be frequently fed and one that is reliant on milk. And what happens when an unweaned child goes unfed by its mother? It gets fussy, gets sick, and left unfed, it will die. But this seems counterintuitive in our illustration. I thought we were supposed to be dependent on God as God's people. Why does the psalmist liken his relationship to God as a weaned child? It's an image of a relationship that is less dependent. But again, we're not thinking like Hebrews. In the Bible, especially in David's time, weaning was a significant milestone in life because it marked a child's readiness to participate in the family and community life. Whenever I notice that like our family members who have been feeding their child and they can feed it solid food, it's more like, okay, cool. I can just give it a carrot and it's good to go. But in Hebrew culture, it's an invitation to participate in family and community life. It's an expression of maturity and self-control. So what is the psalmist saying? He's saying that he has laid down his pride and has picked up maturity and self-control. And he's still reliant on God. He's still content, still provided for. 
when you feed your child, or when you wean your child, do you stop feeding it? <laughs> no. You, you start giving it more solid food. You give it more to do. It's an invitation to transition into family life. And similarly, we're still reliant on God, even though he has given us this great gift through Christ. In him, we live and breathe and have our being. His mercies are new every single morning. We are constantly in need of God. But here's the point I'm driving at. Even though God has done great and mar marvelous things and has forgiven the sins of those who believe in him, we're still held at a level of responsibility. We're invited to be responsible even. Remember, in verse one, David would still occupy himself with things that God told him to occupy himself with. The duties of a king, the duties of a father, as a husband. But we're, and we also are told by God what to occupy ourselves with as Christians. In Ephesians, Paul called it putting on the new self. And when he talks about putting on the new self, he then lists out things to do. Work honestly, do not steal, but give. Let not corruptive talk come out of your mouth, but only that which builds up. And then he goes on to explain the roles of fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, children, slaves, and masters. And just as David the psalmist had much to occupy himself with, Christians today have much to occupy themselves with. But there's still one thing too great and too marvelous for both the psalmist and for us. One thing in which God consistently tells his people, both in the old times and in the new, hands off. And that's his redemptive plan for history, the forgiveness of sin, the saving of souls. There's a reason the Bible says that salvation belongs to the Lord. No amount of occupation or works of the hands can add to or take away from God's saving of sinners. We have much that God expects us to occupy ourselves with, but we cannot occupy our way into salvation. It is not by works lest any man should boast, remember. In the end, this short psalm, this intensely personal prayer of David's becomes corporate. It's not just exclusive to him. It's a prayer for all of God's people. Verse three says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I find it actually very interesting that we see David perform one of his duties as king by telling God's people as a whole to hope in the Lord. When he says, O Israel, that is the community of people in the faith. It includes the people who had faith back then and it includes people who have faith now. And last week, Jason Hahn, as he preached through the 130th Psalm, he talked about hope. And here, the Psalm also talks about hope. And Jason actually helped me out a lot because I was having a hard time figuring it out. <laughs> Biblical hope, opposed to worldly hope, is not an, oh, I wonder if this will happen. It is more of a, I wonder when this will happen. Hope is a confident and patient trust in things told to happen. So what is David doing here in the third Psalm? David calls on God's people to confidently and patiently hope in the Lord and wait for his arrival, which he did arrive, and to defeat sin, which he has. We sang about it this morning. My sin is nailed to the cross. It died for those who believe in him. 
And he was promised that he would establish his kingdom, which he has begun to do, and we trustingly look back on his time on earth, and in biblical hope, we wait for his return, which he said he would do. So in the meantime, Branch, we're to occupy ourselves with what he has given us to do, the things talked about by Paul in Ephesians, the Great Commission, not forsaking the gathering together of ourselves as is the habit of some. And God's people are charged to do this from this time forth and forevermore. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day and this opportunity to learn from your word. I pray that you would teach us and mold us for all of our lives what you are to have us do as we await the return of your son. We thank you for the great gift and the mystery of the cross and I pray that we would grow and mature and understand it all the more for the rest of our lives. I ask that you would walk with us for the rest of this day. And in Christ's holy and precious name, amen.